Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 171, where we speak with Brandon Austin from Rinky Do Finance and talk about leaving a high paying job and reaching financial independence on your own schedule. Don't try to outsmart the market. You know, I know a lot of people, they look at market or like, you know, market movements in hindsight, like with Tesla right now, for example, they'll look and say, oh, if I bought here, I would have, you know, made $100,000. And it's very easy to look at charts, you know, just the way charts are. You can look at them and, and think that way, but it just doesn't work like that. You know, you need to, I would say, be more practical in terms of and, and recognize that hindsight is 2020. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Mindy Jensen. And with me, as always, is my enterprising co host, Scott Trench. Ah, well, you're always just so resourceful coming up with these, Mindy. Scott and I are here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else to introduce you to every money story because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. That's right, whether you wanna, stop signing. That's right, whether you wanna retire early and travel the world, go on to make big time investments in assets like real estate or start your own business, we'll help you reach your financial goals and get money out of the way so that you can live life on your terms and pursue your dreams. Super excited to bring Brandon in today from Rinky Doo Finance. We talk to him about the show name. We get a song stuck in your head if you're from the late 80s and had a babysitting job. And we also talk about reaching financial independence on your own schedule. We discuss leaving a high paying job. That was really interesting to me that he left a high paying job and purposely took a lower paying job, which is something I think a lot of people struggle with. Yeah, I, I think that it's a uh, an interesting take on on finance and something that like, hey, if you're listening to this and you're and you're in the, the first part of it, you might say, oh yeah, well he lives with his parents and they paid for college, and so this is a wealth building approach. But like, guess what? There's a lot of people who who are in the same, similar circumstances who are not building wealth, who are not doing it intentionally, not making a conscious choice, and not maximizing the opportunity. And so I think this is a yet another perspective that we need to address, learn from, and admire because he's going to be building wealth and and living life on his terms because of the, the hard work and conscious choices that he's doing and maximizing, I think, the hand that he's been dealt. Absolutely. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. The easiest way to collect rent? RentApp. RentApp is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love RentApp for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? Rent app, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app slash landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. 
BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Brandon Austin from Rinky Doo Finance. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you very much for having me. It's it's great to uh great to be here. Okay, before we get into your actual money story, I gotta ask you about the name Rinky Doo Finance. <laughs> so everybody asked me this question. It's um there was a TV show when I was a kid that I used to watch on TV called The Elephant Show. And the theme song was Skinny Me Rinky Dinky Dink, Skinny Me Rinky Doo, which I know is a common, a common song, I but it was... I love yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> so it, I wanted a name that was playful and would be you know, not intimidating to people that were just getting into personal finance. And so Rinky Doo Finance, it's very playful. It's fun. It's like you can't possibly be intimidated reading articles on a site called Rinky Doo Finance with like a cute little elephant as its logo. Um, so. You know, that's a really good idea because there's a lot of personal finance bloggers that take themselves way too seriously. And this <laughs> is intimidating stuff. I mean, you're learning about money in many cases for the first time. So to have a, hey, this isn't going to be mean and, and difficult, that's really great. Okay, check them out. Anyway, Brandon, let's get to your money story now. Where does your journey with money begin? Growing up, we weren't rich by any means. You know, we always had food to eat, but we weren't buying Xboxes or like eating out all the time. So I was very conscious of the of the limitations of my financial situation as a kid. Um, and so it, when I started earning money, it took me a while to get comfortable with the idea of having money and, you know, being able to spend on items that I loved and being able to travel and do things like that. So it, it actually took a while for me to adjust my view of myself to the point where I was able to have fun with money and do things that as a kid I never did because I was always conscious of the fact that, you know, we lived, we rented an, an apartment for most of my childhood. And for my parents to save up a down payment, it took them years of, you know, saving up what now would be a pretty modest down payment on a house because prices have climbed so high. And so I was always conscious of that. And it sort of limited my personal view of, of how I was able to spend money. I have that problem today. And my husband and I have reached financial independence and we still, I'm still working. I make a good salary. I have a real estate agent job. I make ridiculous salary last year from real estate agenting, but it's still really hard to part with money when you grow up frugal like that, or you have the complete opposite experience and you grew up frugal, so you cannot spend it fast enough. <laughs> so I find that interesting. I identify with your uh, treatment of growing up, not necessarily poor, but not with just like money to spend whenever. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what does is, what is high school and college look like for you? So high school was pretty much more of the same. Like, um, well, you know what? We, we did move the year prior to, prior to me going into high school. So we did move into a house that, that my parents own. Um, so that was sort of a step up. Like I was, I wasn't in the same environment of being in a rented apartment with messy garbage everywhere and all that sort of stuff. So it was, it was a step up. College was when things started to change because that's when I got my first job. The summer after the first year of college, I started making money. And that was really when I started to have a hard time adjusting to the fact that I now had money to spend because I still lived with my parents. I still live with my parents to this day, actually. But at the time, I was living with my parents, and any money I earned was largely disposable income. So it was very difficult for me to adjust to, you know, spending on not so much little things because I did have an impulse problem in terms of buying little like junk food and and sort of random little things, but larger things. It was tough for me to to adjust to that. What kind of money are we talking about? Are we ten dollars an hour, fifty thousand dollars over the summer? No, it, fifty thousand. That would have been nice. Fifty thousand over summer. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it was it was like ten thousand dollars over summer freelance writing and also working at a warehouse. And then in my 
second year of college was when things really started to pick up. Like I was making $80,000 a year as a writer. I had a like one really big client that would send me a lot of work. As a and, sophomore in college? Yep. Did you was, drop out? I would have dropped out. <laughs> no, but what I used to do is I would be because I studied journalism. So a lot of what we what we were doing was, you know, writing articles, and so I would be kind of in class working on on articles for work, basically working full time and in school at the same time. And I was just lucky enough to have a remote job where I could do that. It was insane, though, like the amount of hours that I put in. Was this how you paid for college? No. So my parents actually paid for college, which huge help. Like my parents have helped me so much. So they paid for college, let me live with them, everything. It's been a fantastic help for me financially. So just imagine, you know, you're a kid, your parents are paying for college, you're living at home and you're making $80,000 a year. It was just a complete change. Yeah, and that's an awesome um, start with this. How, how was your, what was your financial position like when you graduated college? So when I graduated, it continued. Like I, I was still making $80,000 a year for a couple of years after, after that. You know, the issue was, well, not so much an issue, like not, not as big of an issue as maybe some people have, but I wasn't necessarily thinking consciously about saving. I was, you know, I would spend my money on a lot of little things and kind of whatever was left would get saved. And I would always walk around with the sort of guilt because I knew I was making good money and you know the, the sort of money that if either of my parents were making that sort of money when I was a kid, my childhood would have been completely different. So I, I always sort of had this guilt regarding, you know, okay, I'm spending really impulsively. I'm not keeping a whole lot of the money um, when I was in college particularly. And yeah, so... But I didn't know how to really address that. Like I wasn't conscious of, you know, okay, how do I start budgeting? Like, does this mean I have to stop spending money altogether? Like, how do I approach this? So I want to go back to what you just said. You said I was making a lot of money and I was spending little bits and saving whatever else was left over. That's huge. Because, and did you recognize it at the time? Because I see that happening with a lot of people. They're like, well, I don't really have any money to save. You're not trying to save. You're not saving first and spending what's left over. You're spending first and saving what's left over. And that's a huge mindset that you have to change in order to become successful with your finances, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. So I I would have points where I would think about, you know, okay, how much money did I make in the last couple of months? And then I would think, okay, I made that much money and I only have this much to show for it. Like something went wrong along the way, obviously. Um, and the, the fact that it was a lot of little things made it difficult to recognize because it wasn't like, you know, I was going on vacations all the time or spending, you know, like $5,000 here on this thing, $5,000 on that thing. No, it was, you know, like, at most a thousand dollars on you know a big ticket item like once every few months and then everything else was just kind of you know eating out every day buying lots of junk food going to the bar all the time with my friends which is a big one yeah i think one of the big questions here is is a lot of people don't make eighty thousand dollars in a year after they graduate college how did you go about getting this income in the first place without a degree and and not having the skills on paper to do that, to command that kind of income. Right. So I started freelance writing on a site called Upwork. And, you know, I just sort of stumbled into a client who was on an, an upward trajectory, um, running their own agency. And they liked my writing enough that they just, they not only kept sending me articles to write, they also made me sort of not necessarily equal to them, but, you know, like a step down from them in terms of helping to manage the agency. And so I had a lot of responsibility, you know, like teams under me writing and, um, you know, me managing their content and managing them. So I was fortunate in that I stumbled into an opportunity where people really liked my work ethic, even though I didn't have necessarily the qualifications. But journalism, the fact that I was studying journalism did help because they felt confident, you know, giving me the responsibility to manage content for their agency. And how much... 
were you working? Like, how many hours were you working to make that eighty thousand dollars a year? It was a full time job, so it was you know I would be working through class, but I would of course have to take breaks to do you know whatever was needed in class. Uh, but I would it, I was working you know between school and the job like 12, 13 hour days. Oh yikes! Okay, yeah. So eighty thousand dollars sounds awesome, but then when you start talking about. Oh, yeah. But that, that's, that's only his job. He's doing that while working in college. That's phenomenal in college. Yeah. Um, and you know, in college we have a different uh, capability set. What's the uh, energy level? Maybe to a certain right. extent. Oh, for sure. I, could, I yeah. couldn't do that now. And I'm, I've only graduated three years ago. But so right now I'm 24. I couldn't do that anymore. Okay. So this is interesting. You two weeks ago on well two Fridays ago we released uh, Tracy's episode where she has a very high salary but she also has a lot of spending because she's not tracking her spending and it sounds like you also weren't tracking your spending and it was just kind of going wherever and what we said to Tracy and what I'm going to say to you is in your mind you're making eighty thousand dollars a year of course you can afford a thousand dollars on insert item here. Of course, you can afford, you know, an, a one hundred dollar meal. Of course, you. Can. Well, yeah. What does Paula Pan say? You can afford anything. You can't afford everything. So, what was your turning point? Did you? I mean, I, I'm assuming that you had a turning point. You're not just spending all the money that you have. No. So I um, it came in two stages. So first, I got into investing, and I realized the value of money. And so it wasn't so much a conscious effort to, you know, get spending under control as much as it was to transfer the energy I had about spending from buying things to investing in this, in what eventually became the stock market. Initially it was crypto, um, but it, it just became that mindset shift of, you know, saying, okay, I, I understand Know how much fun it is to buy things, but now it's even more fun for me to invest. And the second stage came about a year ago, or a little over a year ago, in September of 2019, when I took a pay cut because the job I was working, you know, I realized the hours were were intense. I wasn't too fond of the people that I was working with anymore. Like I, I, I won't throw them under the bus and say that they were terrible, but it was just not the sort of environment I wanted to be working in anymore. And so I ended up taking a pay cut. I was getting paid in US dollars with the original job. I t- took a pay cut, started working locally, which even though the nominal salary was the same, like I make $50,000 now. Um, at the time I was making like 50, 60,000 US, which is why it ended up being $80,000 Canadian. So even though the nominal salary is the same, it's it's a huge pay cut for me. And so I had to... I could no longer say, okay, I'll spend a bunch of money on my credit card and I know for a fact that I'll be able to pay it off with the next paycheck because the next paycheck is equivalent to, you know, however many Canadian dollars it ultimately was, depending on the transfer. So I had to be, and I still have to be a lot more careful about my money um, because it ends up being less for me. Can you can you take like additional work on top of that to earn more money, or is there a you know is your income truly constrained now in a way it wasn't a few years ago? I can take on side work, but I've used the time and inst- I've used the time that I freed up instead to like I'm learning software development now because that's an area I want to head into, which would eventually allow me to you know surpass the income that I that I was having before, and also. The work I had before was a lot of doing things in bulk, like just kind of you know, running through so many different um, articles and so many different strategies. And, and and now it's a bit more measured in terms of my pace. So I'm able to focus on doing a really, really good job at what I do now. And that's helped me, you know, like we had a meeting at work and you know, my boss is really happy with my progress. He's planning on you know, promoting me and he, he laid out kind of a roadmap for how the business is going to grow and where he wants me to be as it grows. And that in itself is going to help me surpass the income I had before. So it's it was a measured step backwards with the understanding that it will lead to me making more money in a more sustainable way later on, which was the goal. So how do you 
wrap your mind around losing so much income? I know there's a lot of people who are listening who are like, wow, I hate my job. I want to leave, but I'm, what, what is the term, Scott? Golden handcuffs? That's is right, that, yeah. Yeah, I, I make so much money here that I couldn't possibly leave. And I have had that toxic job. I have had the, I hate going to work every single day. And now I have the, I love my job. I can't wait to get to work job. And I didn't have the pay cut involved. I was making nothing at my toxic job, which makes it really, really easy to leave something that isn't, isn't paying so well. But you took a, a significant step back. So how do you wrap your mind around that? Because, and, you know, I do want to address that you said you live with your parents and so there isn't the housing cost. There are some, some easy wins, but it's still a huge mental shift to leave your $80,000 a year job for a $50,000 a year job. And that's 80,000 Canadian versus 50,000 Canadian. Right. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So it was tough because I also... At the original job, I had the luxury of working from home. I was also able to you know, travel a couple of times a year to the U.S. for conferences, which was fun. And then I went to making $50,000 taking the subway, which I hadn't, I hadn't taken the subway in like two years at least. And so it was, it was a step down. It was, it was humbling though. It was good because um, you know, I appreciated the understanding that I had gotten a little... A little cocky in terms of how much money I was making. And so the step down and the fact that I was, you know, taking the subway, waking up at six o'clock in the morning to do that, that all sort of humbled me and, and reminded me, okay, like, you know, you were making really good money, but you still need to be responsible. You, you still need to plan for the future. And, you know, nothing is necessarily going to be that easy all the time. So it forced me to sort of reevaluate my approach to not just money, but life in general. But did you accumulate debt in this process or was it kind of just uh, you didn't accumulate as much as you would have, you would have think you were capable of? No debt, just, just not accumulating as much as I, as I was capable of. Like, you know, I, I was making $80,000 a year for about three years. And at the end of it, you know, I had... You know, as of September 2019, I had about $70,000 invested. So, you know, you think about the money I was making and the fact that I had a lack of housing expenses or schooling debt or anything, you know, that should have been a lot more. It shouldn't have been just $70,000. Well, but there's a lot of people who are making a lot of money that should have a lot more and they don't. What are you doing now, now that you know that you should have had a lot more money and you don't? What are you doing now to to rectify that because you are on the path to financial independence, but you're not on the path to retire early. Right. Exactly. So right now I investing is priority for me. Like when I think about how I'm going to spend my money, it's the first question is how much do I want to invest? And then everything else sort of falls in line after that. And I'm also being more pointed about using the the fact that I have you know, no housing expense. Well, I, you know, I pay a modest amount of rent. It's It would be equivalent to like renting a room and a house that's not as nice as the one I live in. So there's there's an expense, but it's, it's negligible, relatively speaking, in terms of what a lot of people pay for rent in Toronto. So I'm, but I'm, I'm using the opportunity that I have, having reduced housing costs to get as far ahead as possible, because I know at some point, I will have housing expenses, you know, I'll probably buy a house or be renting a, a property. And so I want to put myself in a position where I've, you know, saved and invested so much while I was living at home that even if I have to st- scale back when I move out, it's not going to be a problem in terms of reaching my goals. And what are you investing in right now? So right now I actually use a, a robo advisor. Um, it's called Wealth Simple there in, in Canada. I used to manage my own index fund and ETF portfolio, but I just found it was, I was overthinking things. Like I was constantly saying, okay, this has drifted to a larger portion of my portfolio. Like, what's, how do I handle this? You know, is this even the right index fund or ETF for me? So I, I ended up switching to a robo, a robo advisor. Um, and what's so, a robo advisor? So it, Basically, I deposit money and it, it splits it up into a portfolio of ETFs based on 
whatever information I gave it about my goals and my risk tolerance. So it handles purchasing the assets and then it also rebalances automatically for me. And it's all like a computer doing this stuff. It's not, you know, an actively managed or a human managed fund, I should say. Okay. So I think you're doing it right with the index funds. I'm wondering if you're looking at it too frequently for your own mental well-being. Scott, how frequently do you look at your stock investments? Every couple of weeks, maybe, if I remember. <laughs> and Brandon, <laughs> how, how often are you looking at yours? Basically every day. Yeah, I, um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it's different. How, how long have you been investing? So I started, I want to say, like seriously investing in 2017. So about three years or going on four years. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I just think like when I first started investing, you check it all the time because even though you know you're not supposed to, you, you know, investing for the long term, you just check it all the time. Now it's been, you know, nearly a decade and I'm starting to ease off of, I am now like able to, you know, the four levels of competence, you've got unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, conscious competence, and then unconscious competence. You ever, you ever hear this? No. It's like you don't know what you don't know, then you know what you don't know, then you don't, then you know. Uh, anyways, um, I, I'm just getting to this point where I'm like, okay, I'm now bu- bu- believing and buying into and actually practicing this long-term investing horizon, actually not caring if the market goes down that day, rather than knowing that I shouldn't care, but still kind of caring. Uh, if that makes any sense, and that's that's kind of the the way I feel about my investments. So it's hard to tell somebody not to look, check their investments every day. I got no, no issue with it. So (laughs) (laughs) my husband has been investing. He's in his late forties. He's been investing for 20 years and he checks it every single day and then talks about it to me every single day. Let me tell you about this. You guys keep talking about how you shouldn't pick stocks and invest in index funds, and then you keep making bajillions in Tesla and (laughs) Amazon. Yes, he's. (laughs) But but the amount invested, the initial amount invested in Tesla in 2012 is very nominal. Yeah, not nominal anymore. No, it's not nominal (laughs) anymore. But that's you know that's like ridiculous. Elon Musk growth. I don't know. I don't tell him, but I stop listening when he talks about Tesla. <laughs> yeah, I look because it's sort of entertaining to me. Like it, seeing the movements. Like for example, in March of 2020, I was losing like thousands and losing quote unquote because you know you don't lose until you actually sell. But I was losing like thousands of dollars a day, and it wasn't. It was never a question of okay, should I sell? It was always just wow, the world's burning and. I'm like the my stock market portfolio was sort of the least of my concerns at that point, given everything that was going on. So it was like almost a source of catharticism to watch the money sort of, you know, the value drop so much because everything else that was going on in terms of the health risks seemed so much more concerning to me. And that was going to be my next question with you watching it all the time and being a relatively new investor. Did it freak you out? When that started, we had an episode where we interviewed five early retirees and Brandon, the mad scientist was one of them. And he is so stoic in real life, but he's came on the episode and said, I thought that I'd be cool with a big drop. But when that big drop happened, it turns out I'm not so cool with it. So I'm writing down my feelings now. I'm not taking any immediate action, but I'm writing down my feelings now. And when the market recovers or in a few months, I will revisit how I felt and rebalance my portfolio, stocks versus bonds, based on that from a position of clear-headedness. And I was like, that's the Brandon that I know. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I had the benefit of coming from investing in cryptocurrencies before. So you're used to huge drops for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, it, it was <laughs> exactly. It was and because in crypto, when when something drops, it's like a lot of these projects anyway. They have no real backing or in terms of like you know intrinsic value to them. So you know when they're dropping, you have absolutely no reason to be confident that they're coming back. And so you know when I was watching like VTI drop. It's like, you know, that's the total U.S. stock market. That's dropping. It's not going away. It's not like a cryptocurrency project that's falling apart and it's never going to resurrect again because the whole thing was just based on nothing anyway. So I I had the benefit of that. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, 
we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Pretty good episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters. Landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with a digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? Rent app, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app slash landlord. That's rent.app slash landlord. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to save, trying to invest, but your bank account is stuck. How about we get rid of some of those unused subscriptions you forgot about? Trust me, with Rocket Money, it's easy. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Take control over your subscriptions and cancel your unused ones with just a few taps. Create a custom budget, view spending habits, and let Rocket Money negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Brandon, what are your financial goals? Like, are you are you striving for financial independence? So my big goal is to retire by or have the option to retire by 50. Now I know, like I've had some conversations on Twitter with people who say that's sort of a long time. Like, don't you have any desire to do it sooner? My thing is I, I at least now, I enjoy working and I find fulfillment in, you know, getting up and doing something every day. So I, I don't see myself retiring in the sense of you know quitting my job and you know doing nothing. So I just want to have the, but I do want to have the option to do that at fifty because I don't want to be beholden to something at a point in my life where you know the tide's sort of turning. Like getting jobs is not going to be as easy necessarily as it as it will be, you know now and and you know for the next few years. And and a lot of that comes from observing family members and. And the situations they found themselves in financially where, you know, they didn't really like their jobs. They would have loved to make changes, but they were in their 50s and it's very difficult to do that. And they have mortgages and and things like that where, you know, they can't do that. So that's why I, I chose 50 as, you know, sort of a target for achieving financial independence. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so... I hear from a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to quit my job in five years. Why five years? I hate it. Okay, then maybe start looking for a different job. 
but you don't join the financial independence retire early movement because you hate your job. I mean, that's why a lot of people do, but that shouldn't be the driving force behind it. You are pursuing financial independence. And should retire early happen, that's great. But you're not even retiring early. Like, there's a lot of people we talk to, Scott, in their early 20s who are like, I got to retire before I'm 30 or, I don't know, life will end or whatever. It doesn't have to be that way. There's a lot that you get from doing a job that, you know, you feel like you're contributing to the world. Punching out cogs in a you know, stamping out cogs in a piece of metal may not feel like something that you're you're contributing to the world and, you know, you're doing good. But having a job where you're actively contributing to the betterment of society makes you feel good. And that when you are financially independent, you can work wherever you want. It shouldn't be about quitting your job as soon as possible. And I love that your financial independence goal is 25 years down the road. We've talked to a lot of people who've done it in 10 years fairly easily. It's not this like mad dash towards financial independence where you're so frugal, you get no enjoyment out of life and you're sucking away every penny you can possibly sock away because you have to get there as soon as possible. And I love the mindset behind it that you're not, you know, I'm going to continue doing the things that I'm supposed to do while also being a member of this group that, you know, is weird. Bunch of frugal weirdos. Yeah, a lot of that perspective, I think, too, came from the fact that when I was making, you know, $80,000, and even now, I've always been able to navigate the professional world knowing that, you know, if I lost my job tomorrow, it wouldn't be a catastrophe because I'm fortunate enough to live with my parents. So I've navigated the world in that sense. And I want to maintain that, you know, even so that that to me is, is. the financial independence I want. Like it's, you know, I want to be able to navigate the professional world, making decisions, taking risks, maybe even taking pay cuts to do work that I feel is more positive and meaningful. You know, those are the options I want to have. It's not just being on a beach. It's, you know, being able to navigate the professional world without the same constraints that someone who it's either they keep this job or they can't make a rent or their mortgage, you know, without the constraints that, that someone like that has. That's that's my goal in terms of uh, financial independence. On this point, when you stretch yourself and maximize your income potential, and this is how most people, I think, approach their careers at the beginning, especially as they go for the, the very highest paying job or the, the best combination of total compensation that they can get. And that means that they're at that point maxed out. That is That is the best income situation that they can develop personally. And then they spend basically all of that money or do not accumulate. Like we've talked to so many people, we've talked to millionaires on this show who have less than one month in emergency reserve. All of their money is in retirement accounts and their home equity. So they have no freedom, right? And so that's the key here is, is again, there's a spectrum along, along this journey. And what your position allows you to do, what you're you know living with your parents, but also having maximize the hand you were dealt by playing it so well and, 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 and attacking it so vigorously in college. Um, you, you are not maxed out on your income front. You're able to make a decision that is better for your mental, emotional, physical well-being and still allows you to build wealth and put yourself in that position. And that gives you freedom, flexibility, options forever. And it's not like going after the biggest paycheck isn't also the best opportunity or the best thing for you in some cases. Some cases it is. But I think that people who do that place themselves at a higher risk of being unhappy with their work or their life on a day-to-day basis because they have no other option. You know, they spend themselves into chain, their spending chains them to that that job, regardless of whether they ultimately like it or not. And it becomes a stressful or whatever. And that's when people want to quit their job, is because regardless of their income that they get. A middle-class America, average Joe, always tends to end up spending just the amount that he earns on an after-tax cash basis. Whatever hits the bank account goes out. And that is the, the freedom-constricting thing that I think you are setting yourself up wisely to avoid for life, the way you're handling things. doesn't mean you won't ever have a stressful job, but you'll never be chained to a stressful job. So, I like what you said there. Yeah, that's good. It's not necessarily avoiding stressful job. It's, it's stressful jobs. It's just weathering that stress, knowing that you know, if it falls apart, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Like, I'll tell you, it's it's stressful being CEO sometimes. You know, uh, you got to make decisions that impact people's lives. And there's a lot of scale with this. It is stressful. But it is not 
de- I'm not dependent again on the income from the job to sustain my my lifestyle in general, which allows me to say, you know, as bad as some days get, the good and the overwhelming awesomeness of this job make me want to do it intrinsically for the the value of it in and of itself, and that's the position that I think it's it's worth fighting for and defending for a lifetime and, and sacrificing and grinding out to get there. Okay. I am listening to people listening to this episode right now saying, but he lives with his parents. He lives with his parents. He doesn't even have any bills. Okay. So he's made a smart choice. You could absolutely have gone out a uh, sophomore year in college, pulled a Mindy and been like, I'm out. I'm going to go make $80,000 a year and go get your own apartment and spend all your money and be in a far worse financial position. So first of all, let's address the fact that you do in fact live with your parents. Do you have a timeline for moving out into your own apartment? You said you lived in Toronto. Aren't like shacks a million dollars? It's a really expensive real estate market. I mean, you could drive over the border and go live in Detroit, which is slightly less expensive. So what are your housing plans in the future and how are you making financial decisions now to help mitigate those in the future? So I would like to move out by 30, which is another six years. And the reason I have a longer timeline, so it's it's twofold. Number one, you know, living in Canada, if you want jobs, especially in the media industry, which is where I work, like Toronto is where you live. It's so it would be like moving out of my parents' house in Toronto to buy another place in Toronto just for the sake of it, as opposed to having the option of like moving to a different city, which of course the option is there, but it's, it's, you know, the, the job opportunities are not going to be the same in say, you know, Vancouver or Ottawa or somewhere else. Um, so it just doesn't really make practical sense to rush into it, in my opinion, anyways. I'm also conscious of the fact that. You know, money I'm able to save and invest now is going to be worth a lot more, you know, 20, 25 years from now. And so I'm trying to get as much saved and invested as possible. And so that, you know, when I do put however much down payment on a, on a house, it's not going to be, you know, like a huge trade off between investing and, you know, and losing out on all that, that money. So one mistake I, I have made was, you know, I, I would put, all of my money in my retirement account and also my tax-free savings account, which is, I believe, the equivalent of an IRA in the US. And so, you know, I, w- I was sort of earmarking all that money for retirement savings. And so things like, you know, buying a car, which I did for the first time in September 2020, and then also a house down payment, even though the money for both of those things is there it was just never really allocated in my mind as, you know, that may potentially be for housing. So what I've done now is I've actually set up, you know, separate investment accounts and savings accounts for, you know, a housing down payment so that I won't have to um, pull money out of retirement, which is, you know, there, there are programs that will allow you to do that in a tax favorable way, but I want to avoid that. I want to keep that money for retirement. And so now I'm, I'm sort of being more conscious about, saving specifically for a house down payment. Okay. So let's look at your plans. You said you want to move out by 30. What if you get married? That is a great question. And you know, a few people on Twitter that I've interacted with have pointed out, you know, things can always change. Even my boss mentioned, you know, like I was outlining my plans and he, and he mentioned, there's just one problem. You might get married and have kids like this could, this could derail everything, which that's a very real possibility. It's not something on the radar, but, you know, I would have to adjust my plans for sure. Okay. I can hear people yelling like, oh, well, of course he's going to be able to be retired early when he's living with his parents till he's 30. Brandon is making a conscious decision to reduce his housing costs. Hey, does anybody else recommend reducing your housing costs? Like house hacking? Scott, what is your three tenets of your set for life book? Reduce your housing costs. So Brandon's making a conscious decision. Is it what everybody wants to do? No, but Brandon is choosing this. So good for you for choosing. And just because you want to move out, you know, oh, I I think I'll move out when I'm 30, doesn't mean you're not going to do it when you're 27 or 25 even. But having these plans, thinking long-term, I think is really important. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, I can't wait to get out. And I wonder if it's a difference. Like Canada and America are kind of the same, but also way different. And I wonder, like, do more people in Canada 
live with their parents or is this just a conscious decision you've made that's different? Because in America, as soon as you hit 18, you're like, I got to get out, got to get I would, out. I will just disagree. And I say, I think a lot of people live with their parents in America <laughs> um, with that. So I don't, I don't know if there's a difference, but yeah. I mean, I was living with my parents till I was 26. I was not saving lots of money and I sure wasn't making $80,000 a year doing it. But if I was, I think I would have moved out. I don't think there's a huge difference in terms of Canada and the United States, but culturally, so my parents are from Guyana. And so culturally, it's very normal to live with your parents until you're married. It's just kind of expected, you know, unless you're moving countries for jobs or something like that. So culturally, it's just sort of a given that that's what you do. And the other thing, it's, I think about how wealthy people approach money in terms of, you know, keeping it in the family and helping the entire family unit progress. And to me, I I have this sort of camaraderie with my parents in terms of, you know, I know where we started, which was renting, you know, not the best apartment in the world. And to see them move up to owning their own property. So now I have a sort of, I feel responsibility to sort of see them to the end of paying off their mortgage and reaching a place for themselves where they're, you know, financially stable. And so I would rather pay them the small amount of rent and, you know, help them with, you know, things with odd things here and there than to give someone else like a landlord that money. It's just, you know, to me, I want my family to progress. And so that's another big reason why I'm staying at home. Like once my parents have their mortgage paid off and they're retired, the incentive in in that regard is going to kind of disappear and it, and it'll be, you know, okay, now I'm, I'll, I'll feel like I'm sort of encroaching on their freedom. And so I'll, I'll be more inclined to leave. But until then, I, I sort of feel like I want to help also conscious of the fact that they helped me pay for school, even though they didn't have to, because I had the money to do that. It was just, they culturally felt the responsibility to do that for me. And so I want to, I want to, you know, not just leave as soon as possible and, and, you know, kind of enjoy the benefits of, of them letting me stay here and, and paying my tuition without actually giving something back to them. I think culture has a lot to do with, you know, your experiences with money growing up affects your relationship with money for the rest of your life. And culture is not something that you should try to overrun because you're never going to. Right. Exactly. No, I, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of folks uh, who live with their parents are not doing so be out of a conscious decision to build wealth intentionally, moving well past what I imagine to be the six-figure mark in, in terms of personal net worth with no debt and you know uh, aggressive accumulation and, and long-term outlooks there. A lot of people, I think, are doing that out of a, a state of, of dependency on their parents, which does not seem to be the, state, the, the case with you. And I think that it's it highlights an interesting option available and maybe a cultural stigma, you know, that needs to be addressed because it's not that bad of it's not a bad option. It's a great it's a great option and it creates a tremendous amount of freedom down the line. Um, and in your case, I love the perspective that you're actually helping your parents pay off their mortgage is kind of how you're viewing the the relationship, not as part of that. And it sounds like that's a really healthy joint view on the matter. Right. Yeah. Because that money would just go to a landlord and, you know, make someone else rich as opposed to, you know, helping my own family become rich is the the way I look at it. Hmm. I love it. Well, should we move on to the famous four, Mindy? We should. I think this was really fun. This was just yet another money story and a different perspective that we haven't yet shared. And I, I love sharing every money story, like I said in the beginning. Okay, Brandon, it is time for our famous four questions. These are the same questions we ask of all of our guests. Number one, what is your favorite finance book? So there's a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich by Ramit Sethi. And that was the book that really sort of brought everything together for me because it showed me that it was possible to have fun while investing and saving money. It also made investing very simple because he he was the one that got me into you know index funds. And so... I 100% recommend that book. You know, I've given it to people. I've, you know, said, I've told people like, you must read this book. Like if, if you, if you want to learn about money, but you don't want to, you know, learn about how to read stock charts and stuff like that. Um, so that's my favorite. That's my favorite uh, personal finance book. 
Yeah. yeah, and if you're interested in in hearing Ramit come on, uh, you know we've actually had him on twice now, um, and we'll look up both those episode numbers uh, here in the show notes. Very cool. Ramit last joined us back on episode 127, and then he also joined us. Was that the on last episode 73? On episode 73, and he's a delight to talk to. Yeah, his book's fabulous, and. Um, Because he teaches you, like you said, it doesn't have to be complicated. And I mean, it sure can be. If you want to make money as complicated as possible, you know, buy individual stocks and do the crypto and do the all the everything. But if you want to make it easy, put it in an index fund. Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. Fidelity Total Stock Market Index Fund. I prefer Fidelity over Vanguard, but that's another story. And it blew my mind to hear that, you know, this is like a millionaire author. He's made a bunch of money. And, you know, to read him say that, you know, he just puts his money in index funds and doesn't really pay attention to it. It was, it just blew my mind because my understanding of how rich people handled their money at the time, it was completely different. I thought, you know, they're picking individual stocks or they have like money guys that they, that they give their money to hand to, which I'm sure a lot of them do. But, you know, to hear him say that was like, oh, wow, this is a thing. That's the way to build wealth there. But I also want to caveat that at the end of the day, if you want to, if you want to build that next level of wealth to get to a millionaire and financial freedom, index funds, saving the basics, you know, these types of things being disciplined, but he has a business, he has books, he has all these other assets and those types of things, which allow uh, for that conservative approach to have that much more compounding effectiveness as well. So just know that, that, that at some point that that accelerative piece comes in with it. But yes, I love that book. I love Ramit. I love debating with Ramit. He came on the show. We did a negotiation about salary on episode 73. It was fun. So nice. He, he ended up he ended up getting a, getting a, a promise or not a promise. He ended up getting a template where he could earn into a raise from me uh, on the on the show. <laughs> um, all right. What was your biggest money mistake? So I would have to say how I handled cryptocurrency, which I got very greedy. <laughs> and, you know, I had about, you know, at the end of 2017, I had about $100,000 in crypto in addition to, no, it was, it was, it was sometime in 2018. I had about $100,000 in addition to, you know, a substantial amount invested in the stock market. But I was thinking, you know, okay, crypto is going to make me a millionaire. I'm not going to really withdraw that money. I'm going to leave it there. It's going to keep going up forever. And I'm going to become rich, which of course didn't happen. And so it was, that was, you know, a a big turning point in terms of understanding how to invest more wisely. And so now I, I became a bit more conservative. Yeah. So that was probably my biggest mistake in terms of pure dollars, pure dollars lost. We got to get somebody on here to talk about Bitcoin and, uh, and crypto, uh, cr- <laughs> cryptocurrency generally, Bitcoin specifically around this, because I think it's time that the skyrocketing uh, price of it, I think, matters. I, I will say, I don't think it's a currency. It's a currency. Right. So it's an alternative to the dollar. It's an alternative to things like gold and those types of things. It could, if the dollar inflates, become a currency used by some people or maybe even a lot of people one day out of the sea of currencies there is it an investment you know would i would i save my money and stockpile it into gold or dollars in order to retire i don't know but i want to have this debate uh, because i think that there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of you're going to see volatility in the crypto markets over the next couple of years and it's going to be a wild ride who knows where it ends up but i think that's an interesting discussion so, so your biggest mistake is crypto. It sounds like you put a lot of money in and sold at the bottom. Is what I'm about to gather. Well, that- no, he well, didn't. No. He said he had a hundred thousand oh, okay. dollars. How much did you put in? So I put in twenty. Um, okay. Yeah. So I made good money, and so I, I wrote it all the way up to the point where the portfolio was about a hundred thousand dollars, and then I wrote it all the way back down. Um, well, you know, I did. I did cash out some. So it, it would have been a bit more than $100,000. So I, I took out some and I was left with $100,000. And I wrote it all the way back down to like $30,000. So it's a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. So it's an opportunity cost of not selling high, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And, and just, you know, the amount of energy and time I spent thinking I'm going to become a millionaire from this and, you know, which probably fueled other bad financial decisions, which weren't major, but just, you know, an an overall lack of care because I thought I was going to be a millionaire. And so, 
that was an, an overall mistake, I think. Well, I still think you'll be a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think you'll definitely be a millionaire. I, I think your fundamental mistake is not not that specifically, but the lack of an investment philosophy generally that you could adhere to over the long run through ups and downs, regardless of whether that includes crypto or not. I think that it was it was kind of like, oh, it's really high and now it's really low, you know, whatever. And 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 I don't think it didn't speak to me that there was a thirty year or fifty year outlook on the the planning around the, the money management in this case. Is that right? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it was just sort of going along with with what I thought was going to make me rich in very short order. Uh, okay, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? My best piece of advice would be don't try to outsmart the market. You know, I know a lot of people, they look at market or like, you know, market movements in hindsight, like with Tesla right now, for example, they'll look and say, oh, if I bought here, I would have you know made $100,000 and it's very easy to look at charts, you know, just the way charts are. You can look at them and, and think that way, but it just doesn't work like that. You know, you need to, I would say, be more practical in terms of and, and recognize that hindsight is twenty twenty. That's my big advice to anyone getting started. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I keep chiming in on this, but like, I feel, I feel this. Like when I started investing, I tried to time the market and beat the market and pick these other these little stocks and figure out the, the where the value lies. And the temptation is is irresistible. It's just it is for especially for someone who's just getting started with your first ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars, where that's that seems like oh I could just multiply this by tenfold and I'm I'm done. And so the thing is, index fund investing we know is mathematically a, a superior alternative for most. But if you can't resist a better middle ground than attempting to do something like timing the market or beating the market or crypto trading is likely going to be uh, approached by a guy named Peter Lynch, who wrote One Up on Wall Street, which allows you to begin doing something closer to what Indy's husband does in selecting stocks that you think are likely to increase in value over the long run. The reason for that is that it's still you're probably not going to beat the market, but at least you're going to be closer on average to that index fund performance with an approach like that than you will by uh, attempting to do this trading mechanism stuff that, you, that you're doing with crypto. So I just think it's phenomenal advice and would just say there is a middle ground if, you're not, if you feel like it's too boring and you, you too, you'd be too antsy if you don't get some chance to at least attempt to flex your mental muscles and invest in something. I have to I have to read that book because I, I haven't paid too much attention to the middle ground. I, I just sort of went all the way to the other side and, and said indexes are the only thing you need to think about. But so mm-hmm. I have to pay some attention to that. Yeah, I, I drop almost almost all my money into index funds at this point. So just saying, but I, I think that the one up on Wall Street or or that approach of of, of thinking about a couple of stocks to to invest in long term for value. If you can't resist, is it, is it maybe a middle ground for some? <laughs> well, and let me give you a glimpse into Carl's day. He wakes up and he reads 57 business journals all about tech. He's not reading about the automotive industry except Tesla because it's sort of tech-related and he's obsessed. But he's not reading about the automotive industry. He's not reading about the boating industry. He's not reading about pork bellies. And all this stuff doesn't matter to him. He only reads tech. But he reads everything about tech. And he didn't start today. He started 20 years ago. And he's been reading about, oh, Apple has this new thing coming out where you can listen to music portably in a different way. That's kind of cool. Wait, they're making a phone? Why would a computer company make a phone? That's so stupid. Oh, and then you read more about it. And it's it's all these little bits of information that pile up. So if you want to invest in a sector or a couple of sectors, know what it is, do a lot of research, do a lot of reading. And so I said, I'd give you a little glimpse of his day. He wakes up, he reads 57 different articles, and then he goes on to the bigger internet and reads like the more mainstream news articles about those same things. And he listens to podcasts. He listens to the Tesla podcast. He listens to the Motley Fool podcast. He listens to all these different viewpoints, and he's constantly educating himself. So it sounds like he's done really, really well with Tesla, but he bought it eight years ago, almost nine years ago, when it was nothing, when it was just this random little company. I don't even know what their stock price was, a dollar? Like He didn't invest, and that's another thing. He didn't put the whole farm on this one stock. He's like, huh, I wonder what's going what's gonna to happen with this. I'll try it out. 
and you know, Facebook came out and he's, oh, I'll, I'll try that out. Cause everybody I know is on Facebook. There's, there are things you can think of that can help inform your decision, but you don't just jump on a hot stock tip. Yeah, that's right. I, and I don't do that by the way, with my investing, what I do all day, every day is think about bigger pockets. I think about bigger pockets. How do we grow bigger pockets? How do we get the right people in bigger pockets? How do we come up with the next strategy to, or the next money show or the next, uh, or the next podcast? Like I'm just always thinking about that stuff. And so most of my energy and attention goes into that. And it just know yourself. Like if you're going to, if you're going to go into stocks, be like Carl, or if you're going to approach it to something, something different, like, you know, approach it like Mindy or I, where we pour ourselves into the, the investments or businesses or, or agent work or whatever it is that, that is the wealth, the true lever of wealth. Yeah. There's no one right approach, but there's a whole lot of wrong approaches. So make intelligent choices, not just hot stock tips. Okay. Scott, ask about the joke. All right. What's your favorite joke to tell at parties? So this is a tough one for me. I, I knew it was going to be tough. Um, I'm like a situationally funny guy. I don't have like a particular <laughs> a particular go to joke. It's like if something funny happens, I'll um, I'll be able to make the whole room laugh by my like snarky comment about it. I'm not sure if that's a good uh, if that's a good answer. I've got one today. If you don't if you don't have any, yeah, by all means. So when I was doing some work on some electrical work at my house the other week, this this last week, and you know. My wife was shocked to find out that I am not a very good electrician. <laughs> All right. Where can people find like, out more about you, Brandon? Like, wait, Scott did electrical work? <laughs> I have a better, more in line with the com- with the show joke. Oh, come on. I like that uh, With our Canadian guest, what has antlers and sucks blood? A mosquito. Nice. Ah. <laughs> Canadian approved. <laughs> She's a whole herd of moose jokes. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, now we'll do the last one. Brandon, where can people find out more about you? So I'm on Twitter at, uh, at RinkyDoFinance and also RinkyDoFinance.com. I am going to uh, say thanks so much for getting that song stuck in my head because I haven't heard that song since I was babysitting in high school. (laughs) And it used to stick in my head all the time when I was babysitting him. And now it's going right back again. I can't remember a lot of things, but I can remember some horrible kids song from the (laughs) late 90s, early 90s, late 80s. Oh, my God. I'm so old. Okay. Uh, Brandon, thank you so much for your time today. This was a lot of fun. And we will talk to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. I had a blast. Scott, that was Brandon from Rinky Do Finance. What did you think of the show? I thought it was great. I thought I thought that he had a, a, a unique perspective on finance. Sometimes we hear stories about like the guy, you know, like Tony Gated, right? Who lost four hundred, you know, went from four hundred pounds to two fifteen, thirty thousand in credit card debt to half a million dollars in net worth, with a real struggle that went that went through an inflection point and having to deal with all these challenges. And you have this Herculean story. Guess what? Not all of us start at that point. And have that hero's journey <laughs> with some of those things. And Brandon is, I think, often an example of what is, I think, is very normal and going on here, but not discussed a lot in, in in our society. And guess what? Like he has a great money story. He's making conscious decisions. He's a hustler. He's he's maximizing the hand that he's been dealt, and he's maximizing his opportunity and freedom in life downstream by making a conscious decision to live with his parents. I think we should normalize that discussion and say this is a tool or a process that's open to a lot of people that I think is a very valuable and positive way to build wealth and, and something to be admired. Absolutely. I think it's great that he's living with his parents. I mean, Toronto real estate is horribly expensive. I mean, I'm not kidding. You could maybe get a shack for a million dollars, but you're also competing with a lot of other people for the privilege of buying an uninhabitable dump for a million whole dollars. That's a lot of money, in my opinion. Uh, Tony <laughs> Gaiden, excellent story. What? An uninhabitable dump in Toronto for a million dollars. You're going to get us in trouble. <laughs> well, okay. Please, yes, please send all the pictures of your amazing property that you were able to buy in the last four months in Toronto to Scott <laughs> at biggerpockets.com. All right, fair enough. <laughs> I'm only going to give him Scott's email from now on. Uh, that rep, The episode that you referenced, Tony Gaten, is episode 21. It's a great episode. If you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to it. We should get out of here, Scott. Let's do it. 
from episode 171 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. He is Scott Trench. I am Mindy Jensen, giving one last shout before we're out. And small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.